We've had a weekend to absorb all of the information we've now got about the Omicron variant. To be honest, it's all still fairly unconfirmed. But we can now look at our government and say, does it look like we are ready for this new variant? I don't know. We're going to discuss that tonight. I'm joined by Ash Sarko. How are you doing, Ash? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm feeling kind of zen about this new variant. I feel like we kind of know what's coming. The vaccines are basically going to work. Could be a little bit awkward, but it's not the end of the world. Where where are you at? But you know, emotionally, I think it's zen, but for a different for a different reason. Um, my feeling is I am just a floating leaf on the stagnant pond of history. That's just how I'm feeling. Yeah, it's good. I'm good not to fighting walk, it. Good to walk I'm through life. Raging. With that attitude, lower the stakes, that's what I say. And we'll be talking to an expert in South Africa, obviously um, the heart of the storm when it comes to this variant, but also um, we speak about how um, that country and that region has been let down by the West. We will also, of course, tonight talk about Keir Starmer's reshuffle. Sort of started with a bang this morning, very controversial, the the circumstances in which that reshuffle started, but it's it dragged on a little bit. But I think we're going to have enough information to do a good segment on that. We've also got Nadine Doris and Piers Corbin, two, two great little sections for you there. You know the score. If you haven't already, hit the subscribe button. And we do want to know your comments and your questions. You can tweet them on the hashtag TiskySour or put them in the comments box. The emergence of the Omicron variant of coronavirus has jolted governments around the world into action. And this weekend, Boris Johnson attempted to present himself as a leader on top of his brief. So yesterday, we took steps to protect the UK against the variant coming here from southern African countries and earlier today added four more countries to the red list. But we now need to go further and implement a proportionate testing regime for arrivals from across the whole world. So we're not going to stop people traveling. I want to stress that we're not going to stop people traveling, but we will require anyone who enters the UK to take a PCR test by the end of the second day after their arrival and to self-isolate until they have a negative result. The effectiveness of a day two PCR test has been questioned by the Scottish and Welsh governments. Um, both have come out in favour of a day eight test and eight days isolation. That makes a lot of sense given the incubation period of COVID-19. It's a lot longer than two days. However, regardless of what we do with our borders, it seems likely there are already multiple cases of Omicron in Britain. 11 people have already been identified with the variant, many of whom have not travelled to southern Africa, meaning community transmission has clearly taken place. That all means that to keep community transmission under control, England is reintroducing face masks in shops and on public transport. That brings England into line with Scotland and Wales. The Westminster government have, however, stopped short of implementing their so-called Plan B. That would include vaccine passports and a request for people to work from home. That latter omission was the subject of an interesting exchange between Andrew Marr and Sajid Javid on Sunday. Do you think people should work from home where possible? No, I don't think we're, that that's necessary. Why not? In the, because it's, uh, this is about uh, taking uh, proportionate action uh, for, against the, the risks that we face. And, and I think what we have set out uh, you know, yesterday and a couple of days before that on the red listing, these are the appropriate, responsible things to do. 
Um, I mean, the reason I ask about that is Sage, your advisors, are very, very clear. They say reintroduction of working from home guidance is likely to have the greatest individual impact on transmission out of the proposed measures, and yet you've ruled it out. Uh, well, I think the, 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 our scientific advisors, whether they're sage or others, they, that's their job. They give advice. Ministers need to decide. And one thing, by your, the way, ministers need to... It's your job to ignore it. I mean, well, well our, our job is to, to take account of any scientific advice and then okay. decide. And, 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 and let's remember, you know, in the past when we've taken such actions, they also come with a really heavy cost on the economy, on, on people's social lives, on their, on their mental health. And, you know, I've seen so many problems in the NHS uh, that were non covid with problems, you know, caused by previous lockdowns and things. So, okay. you know, that's not of interest to me. It, that's not of interest to me. That's quite a bold statement when it comes to working from home. What Sage have said would be the most effective thing to do when it comes to limiting community transmission. I'd also, you know, I would have liked Andrew Marr to ask him that. So you say you've been in hospitals and you've seen all of these people having problems because of measures such as working from home where possible. I mean, lots of elements of lockdown have enormous consequences for our mental health for our physical health being told that if possible work from home i don't i don't buy it it is of course worth emphasizing we still know very little about this variant and there has been speculation that while being more transmissible and evading vaccines omicron could be relatively mild those making that argument have cited Dr. Angelique Coetzee. She is the South African doctor who first spotted the new variant. Here she is explaining to the BBC what happened after a man in his early 30s came to her clinic suffering from extreme tiredness, a headache and a scratchy throat. Because it's unusual for that specific person to present with this type of symptoms, I decided to test. Um, we do um, rapid testing in our surgeries and I did the rapid test and it was positive. I then tested the rest of his family and it's all positive. I, every one of them very, very mild symptoms and that is what we call mild symptoms. And then for the rest of the day, I actually saw um, more patients coming in with the same sort of symptoms. They all tested positive. What we are seeing clinically in South Africa, and, and remember, I'm at the epicenter. Uh, uh, that's where I'm practicing. is extremely mild. For us, that's mild cases. Um, we haven't admitted anyone. I spoke to other colleagues of mine. The same picture. People have been taking heart from Dr. Coates' description of these cases as mild. However, we shouldn't get too carried away. Every variant of COVID has so far been mild for people in their early 30s. We are going to have to wait and see how it affects people who are more vulnerable. We just don't know that much. We're also going to have to wait to find out to what degree Omicron might evade existing vaccines. The chief medical officer of Moderna, Paul Burton, explained to Mark the time frame for any update were we to need it. We should know about the ability of the current vaccine to provide protection in the next couple of weeks. But the remarkable thing about the mRNA vaccine, the Moderna platform, is that we can move very fast. Lots of people will be imagining you and your colleagues putting the Thanksgiving turkey to one side, going back to work at short notice to do this, and then will be asking themselves, okay, if we need it, when will we get the new Omicron uh, a vaccine from Moderna into our arms? How soon might it be available? If we have to make a brand new vaccine, I think that's going to be early 2021, uh, 2022, before that's really going to be available uh, in, in large quantities. 
So that's promising. We could have updated vaccines at the start of next year. In the meantime, the UK government has announced plans to open up the booster programme to all adults in Britain and to reduce the time between second and third doses from six to three months. The decision followed advice from the JCVI, which is the UK's vaccine advisor. Professor Weishi Lem, who chairs the body, explained the logic in a press conference earlier today. One way of reducing the impact of this mismatch between vaccine and variant is to increase the strength of the immune response provided by the current vaccine. In other words, if we can raise the level of the immune response generated by the vaccine, that higher level of immune response will reach out and provide extra protection to mismatched variants. That is what we can do, fortunately, because we know that with the mRNA vaccines, the Moderna vaccine and the um, Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, and to a lesser extent, the AstraZeneca vaccine, a boost of these um, vaccines provides a very, very strong immune response. The immune response provided with the boost is measured to be higher than the immune response attained after the second dose. So there's a stepwise increase. And this increase in the immune response will broaden the protection, hopefully also against the new variant. That was Professor Wei Shen Lim explaining the recommendations of the JCVI. It is important to note that just because all adults will now become eligible for boosters after three months of their second dose, that doesn't necessarily mean we'll all get them immediately. I got a little bit overexcited when I first got that update to my phone. In fact, it's now up to the NHS to decide when to invite people depending on their age and priority. All perfectly reasonable, to be honest. Ash, we've all had a weekend to dwell on the Omicron variant. Lots is still unknown. There's a limit to the amount of speculation we can do about the features of the virus. But what's your verdict on our government's response so far? Okay, so first the welcome bit of news, which is this expansion of the booster rollout. We know that there's waning effectiveness the longer you go on from when you've had uh, your jabs, particularly there have been problems with AstraZeneca and the Delta variant. So I think having the expanded booster program is wise and it's become even more urgent because of this potentially more vaccine resistant variant popping up in South Africa. So that's a really good thing. There are unfortunately some really bad things. First is this refusal to countenance a return to working from home where possible. There's one reason and one reason only why the Conservative Party is reluctant to do that. And that's because their you know, major donors are property developers, are commercial landlords. They are in hock to material interests, which directly conflict with the demands of health preservation. As Andrew Marr pointed out, uh, Sage has said it is the single biggest and most effective individual measure that this government can take. It is relatively non-intrusive in the sense that it still means that we all get to do the things we want to do. We get to socialize, we get to go out, we get to go to restaurants. It's just breaking the office as a particular hub of transmission. They don't want to do that because it conflicts uh, materially with their donors. And also, I think there is a sense of ideological opposition that when you give people 
greater flexibility when you prioritize people's well-being over the interests of those material interests, you stray away from conservative values. I also think that the instructions at the moment, which is that you only have to self-isolate if you're a close contact of somebody who has the Omicron variant, is potentially risky. So I don't know how many PCR tests regularly get the sort of sequencing which allows you to identify between variants. It might be that as a precautionary measure, it's better to return to the old style of self-isolating where household contacts self-isolate for 10 days along with the person who is confirmed to have the virus. I would dread that happening. I personally really wouldn't like it, but it might be the safer thing to do. It might be the thing which preserves uh, in-person teaching and, you know, like Christmas being fun. Um, So I think that would be another thing to look at. And then the third thing is the grotesque level of sick pay that we have in this country. So right now, sick pay is still under £100 a week. It is not enough for people to live on. And if what you want to do is incentivize people to get tested, even if they have just an inkling that they might have coronavirus, if you want to incentivize them being able to stay at home to protect their colleagues and people in the outside world, then you do have to have statutory sick pay set at a much higher level, at least a level that you can survive on Uh, you know, with some level of dignity. And until the government takes that measure, I think that we will be fatally uh, hamstrung in our pandemic management, whether it's coronavirus or something else down the line, because you can't get people to make a choice between paying their bills and protecting other people. That's not a real choice. And it's something which endangers everybody. I can imagine an argument which sort of involves mental health where you say, look, we're not going to tell people they can't go to work because while for lots of people they like to work from home, for many people that might be the only social contact they have. So, you know, we don't want to ban that. But what you would say is what we absolutely want to say is any worker who would prefer to work from home or is who, who is happy to work from home, they should do that. And we will be telling bosses that they have to give maximum leeway to their workers to work wherever they want. If you don't want to come into the office, no boss should be pressuring a worker to come into the office unless they're in a, f- a frontline job. Be a very easy thing for the health secretary to say that is not going to damage anyone's mental health. It's, if he was a health secretary who cared about our health, that's what he would be saying. I think on the self-isolation, I maybe differ with you slightly because I think if we went back to a situation where you had to self-isolate for 10 days, if you'd been in contact with anyone with any kind of COVID-19 I do think that that's going to be quite difficult to enforce at this point. We're double jabbed. Many of us will be triple jabbed soon. And also we still, we, we have 50,000 cases a day. So there's going to be a lot of people who are going to be asked to to self-isolate for, for 10 days. So I imagine that's going to be lots of people turning off their, their app, refusing to answer the phone from NHS test and trace. So I feel like the situation we've got at the moment where you're encouraged to get a PCR test, I'd say we should be, it shouldn't be, you might like to get a PCR test. I'd say you've been in contact with someone, go get that PCR test right now and then take a lateral flow test every two days. I think that's a, a slightly more reasonable ask to make of people. Although, I mean, you're right, it should definitely be be looked at. The working from home thing though, absolutely. I was sort of, I was thinking this morning, what does this new variant change in terms of sort of the positions I hold and what I would advocate for? And my conclusion was kind of not very much this whole time, ever since we've had the vaccine, what I've been in favour of is those things which I think are sustainable, which we can basically introduce without reducing sort of the the, the health of our social lives, without severely damaging our, our quality of life, but which will limit 
the transmission of COVID-19 and also limit the transmission of, of all communicable diseases or at least respiratory ones. We, we don't want any of them. So sick pay, if you're sick, ventilation in schools and ventilation in any indoor space, these are just things that we should just have in general and that we haven't invested in them at this point is just, you know, it's bonkers. And yeah, I would also go for masks in places where it's it's not too invasive for that to happen. It doesn't really damage your experience of being on the tube or being in a supermarket to wear a mask. I think teachers have every right to say that their kids should be wearing masks in class. They have put themselves in, in harm's way more than really any of us at this point in time. So I think that demand's completely reasonable. We'll probably debate a few more of these um, policies in one moment. First of all, I want to show you another clip. Professor Wei Shen Lim um, spoke in that press conference earlier. That's what we showed you before. Also speaking at that conference was Jonathan Van Tam. He's become famous for explaining COVID developments in analogies. This was his latest attempt. So to me, and as you know, I love football. Um, we started with 11 players in the team with the Wuhan vaccine. And you could say that we've kind of picked up a couple of injuries when Alpha came along and then Delta came along, uh, those variants that are slightly different from the Wuhan uh, original strain. And um, we've had to use our subs off the bench to keep us in the game, but we're well in the game. And you can see that with the current epidemiology in relation to Delta, that the vaccines are holding up very well and largely keeping us out of trouble. Now, Omicron is like now picking up a couple of yellow cards to key players on top. We may be okay, but we're kind of starting to feel at risk that we might go down to 10, 10 players. And if that happens, or if that's a risk that it's going to happen, then we need everyone on the pitch to up their game in the meantime. And that's really upping your game in terms of boosters and in terms of antibody responses. We're not going to wait for the red card to happen. We're going to act decisively now. And we're asking everyone to up their game um, we're asking everyone to play their part in the urgency now of the booster programme coming forward the moment you are called by the NHS. It's really, frankly, never been more vital that, uh, that the booster campaign has never been more vital than at this point in time. I mean, sometimes his analogies have, you know, helped people understand what's going on. Ash, I want to bring you in on this because you, you know, you watch more football than me. Did that make any sense or did that just make what should be quite a simple point incredibly complicated? I mean, it made it incredibly complicated. <laughs> I would say there was something a little bit self-indulgent about torturing this poor laboured metaphor. I mean, really, it should be considered a crime against the Geneva Convention. I think we all know what the emergence of a new variant is and we don't necessarily need an elaborate sporting analogy. <laughs> one hour, sorry, one minute and 35 seconds, really long. It's a really long analogy. I mean, maybe you could have done something with like F1 and thinking about like something's gone wrong, but you're not disqualified. It's like a grid penalty. So you've got to work a bit harder, maybe. I've been watching a lot of F1. I'm sorry, Michael. It's it's on the brain. It always surprises me how much F1 you watched. I, I wanted to get that. <laughs> we've got a lot of clips to get through, which is why I jumped to that. But I realized I should give you an opportunity, you know, if you wanted to push back against my idea that maybe getting people to self-isolate for, for 10 days if they've been a contact is is too demanding. The reason why I'm suggesting that is because I don't know what proportion of PCR tests get the regular genomic sequencing. So in the absence of what I see as a really aggressive contact tracing 
program where you are empowering local councils to impose some degrees of local measures in order to geographically contain outbreaks, then I think, well, what's the what's the next best thing? Uh, it was announced quite a few months ago that now is around the time where they were thinking of scaling back some of the test and trace operations. So in the absence of something which I think is really important, which is being able to have a level of monitoring of outbreaks of the Omicron variant and also having uh, local councils in post to take action quite swiftly so you can avoid national measures, then the next best one along is saying self-isolate household contacts at the very least. Mm, until we work out what the hell is going on. I can see the until argument for it. what the hell is going on. Yeah, appa- apparently they can tell with most tests if the Omicron variant is around because some, I, I'm not even going to try and explain it, but or not, I'm not going to try and pretend that I understand it more than try and explain it. It's not that it's so complicated. It's that I, I haven't quite got my head around it. But something like an S gene falls out. There's something to do with the letter S. That's something what, I, what I read S. from the Robert Peston thread as well. <laughs> yeah. I didn't understand it, but I did read it. Look out for the, the letter S, guys. journalism you can get from <laughs> Navarra Media. Go to navarra.media forward slash support and maybe you can find two smarter hosts. <laughs> yeah, so the, the S drops out. That's all I've heard. I want to move to another COVID story today because I did have a massive face palm reading the news this morning. And it was reading specifically about the Vaccine Manufacturing Innovation Center. Now, you you might remember last year we heard a lot about this new manufacturing hub. It was supposed to prevent any shortages during a future wave or if we ever needed um, to, to produce vaccines for, for variants or even, heaven forbid, a future pandemic. Last September, on a visit to the site, Boris Johnson said the following to to that effect. So he said, when open, the VMIC will be able to manufacture enough vaccine doses for the whole UK population in as little as six months, which would transform how we beat this virus and prepare for future pandemics. Now, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? It sounds like a, a government that's being proactive to stop future lockdowns, to stop future pandemics destroying our lives for two years. Well, it's now up for sale. So the FT explain the decision as follows. They say the need for a state-backed vaccine manufacturing centre has waned as pharmaceutical companies have stepped in to meet demand for COVID-19 jabs. That's according to people familiar with the VMIC sale process. Quote, the worry was there would be a surge in vaccine manufacturing requirements during the pandemic and we'd need surge capacity And that reason is gone, unquote, said one person familiar with the efforts to offload the VMIC to the private sector. Now, you can't, you know, you can't read that without thinking, what the fuck? We're currently discussing whether we'll need more restrictions because of a variant which which emerged due to a shortage of vaccines in many parts of the world. We've just seen there, you know, the guy from Moderna saying we might have to tweak these vaccines and then it will take a little while for us to roll this out. Clearly, as we've seen from the past year, Moderna, Pfizer are not going to be able to make enough vaccines so that there is an abundance and we're not competing with, with other countries and you have this sort of horrible situation of vaccine nationalism where there isn't enough for any. And that's the situation in which the government has decided, oh no, 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 no big pharma, they've, they've got it all under control. This massive, you know, flagship vaccine manufacturing hub that we were going to create that was going to be state-backed so that it it sort of produces vaccines according to the priorities of of democratically elected governments no no we don't need that we don't need that this this thing's over like what what are these people thinking right 
Anyway, the FT sort of goes on to explain why these people don't think this is needed anymore. Um, so this is the reason given for selling this thing off. So the FT report. The person added that additional investment was needed to complete the VMIC, and this could come from a buyer. The government has put at least £250 million into the project for UK Research and Development, a state funding agency, and could now look to recoup some of that investment through the sale process. So we're selling this off because we've already invested £215 million, and we want to get that back. You know, £250 million, quite a lot, quite a lot to invest in a, in a mass vaccination factory when we're still in the middle of a pandemic. Like, this is, this is insane, right? So according to the National Audit Office, the COVID pandemic has already cost the government £370 billion. £370 billion. And now someone in government has decided that £215 million is too much to spend on you know, the one thing that gets us out of pandemics without us all having to have like a, a miserable life for years. It's it's bananas. And I've seen lots of people talk about this on Twitter, lots of wonky people, lots of people who aren't, you know, like mad lefty Corbynites like myself. Everyone is looking at this thinking like, this is the most blatant example of the government shooting itself in the foot. And in the process, I mean, you know, shooting us all in the foot, because if we don't have enough vaccines for the next pandemic or for the next variant, it seems like this is going to be, it's their fault. It's an, it's an active decision to save 215 million pounds. I mean, Ash, do you have any do you have any insiders in the Treasury who made this make sense? Like, well, I haven't seen anyone defend this, by the way. James Butler, I think, in a piece about Johnsonomics, quoted the Treasury mindset thusly, which is they have the view that spending money, like eating people, is always wrong. So you end up in a position where you've got pressure, not just from the fiscal hawks within the Conservative Party, but from within the Treasury itself, to cut back on day-to-day -day costs. Whether or not those cutbacks represent a genuine saving, like, for instance, not just splashing out your expensive test and trace contracts to somebody that you met in the pub, or whether it's a false economy. So, for instance, flogging off uh, a centre which could help research, develop, uh, vaccines, not just for the coronavirus pandemic, but for future pandemics, that would represent, I think, a false economy. Because sure, 215 million, if you're not really doing anything, is a lot of money. You're like, okay, well, this hasn't really contributed very much. But when you need it, and when you've got the infrastructure in place to carry out that research, to develop a vaccine faster than anyone else, and to do it, rather than in the private sector, um, you know, so it's got, it's walled up by patents, but with the potential to democratize those vaccines and share them around the world, then it looks a lot less like a false economy. It looks like a real investment in our future. But that's not the mindset, which is either at the Treasury, and it's not the mindset within bits of the government, particularly the bits which are led by Rishi Sunak and his allies. Mind-blowing. And we got, a, we got a few good comments and pushback against something I said. Stephen Everson tweets on the hashtag Tisky Sour. Michael Walker says that we shouldn't ask people to isolate if they come into contact with anyone who tests positive because with 40 to 50,000 new cases a day, this would cover too many people. But the point would precisely be to bring that intolerable number down. I would respond to that. If I were to believe that that would significantly bring that number down, like really significantly bring it down, I would agree with you. I think at this point, with with so much COVID nineteen around, and also with so many people who are double vaccinated and don't really think they're sensitive to it, if you've just been boosted with a good mRNA vaccine, you are quite protected against 
catching it. So sort of telling people to self-isolate, I think, is not necessarily going to have too much impact on on levels of the virus. And it is going to make COVID-19 just a much bigger burden than it than it already is. Yes, I know. The biggest burden of COVID is people going to hospital and people dying. At the same time, the vaccines have dramatically reduced the likelihood of that for, for all of us, essentially. And especially if people get their boosters. The boosters really do work. Next story. The emergence of the Omicron variant has led to a heated debate as to whether vaccine apartheid is to blame. Scientists have been consistently warning that until we vaccinate the whole world, dangerous new variants will continue to emerge, and Omicron seems to fit that pattern. The variant was first identified in South Africa, where only 24% of the population are fully vaccinated, and the first identified specimen of Omicron was from Botswana, where 20% are fully vaccinated. That compares to 68% in the UK. That Omicron is the West selfishness coming back to bite us is a point that has been made forcefully by, among others, Gordon Brown. He blames the new variant on the West hoarding vaccines and even destroying surplus doses instead of passing them on. The New York Times' COVID reporter has also echoed that sentiment. She tweeted, the new variant is exactly what the experts I've talked to have warned about over and over again. While we are busy boosting already vaccinated young people, leaving millions of vulnerable people elsewhere without a single dose is dangerous for everyone. It's a persuasive line of argument. However, it has received some pushback. Matt Iglesias, formerly of Vox, shared an article from Bloomberg about South Africa turning away vaccines from Pfizer and Johnson and Johnson. He tweeted the following commentary. The impulse to turn Omicron into a vaccine equity morality tale is blasting through the reality that in South Africa, like the USA, the constraint on vaccination is demand, not supply. They were literally turning away doses earlier this week. Eve Fairbanks, who is a writer based in South Africa, backed up that view. So she tweeted, Hi from South Africa, birthplace of your newest COVID variant. I see hot takes that South Africa's problem is we don't have enough nice American vaccines. We do not have a problem with vaccine supply. We're turning away vax shipments. Our problem is fear of vaccines, same as you. Fairbank went on to blame high-profile American anti-vaxxers for spreading misinformation, which has become popular in South Africa. So who's right? Is the West hoarding vaccines to blame for South Africa's low vaccination rate, or is it the fault of vaccine scepticism? I asked Fatima Hassan, director of the Health Justice Initiative based in South Africa. So it may be true that South Africa has sufficient supplies as at November 2021, but that was not the situation in February or March or April or May or June. In fact, for the first three quarters of this year, South Africa was drip-fed supplies from Pfizer and Johnson & Johnson. For the better part of this year, Johnson & Johnson was unable to deliver contractual promises of its vaccines due to issues with the Baltimore plant and also because Johnson & Johnson was prioritizing customers in Europe and in North America, so much so that vaccines that were filled and finished in South Africa were actually exported to Europe when South Africa was facing the third wave. The reason why more people are vaccinated with Pfizer, and in fact, 10 million people have already received the Pfizer first shot, 8 million people have received the Pfizer second shot, compared to, you know, just over about 5 million people who've received the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is because for 
many months, Johnson & Johnson was basically just not delivering vaccines to South Africa. And where it did, it was giving donations of soon-to-expire stock. That is how we vaccinated teachers in this country. So there's been uh, quite a number of delays in the delivery of supplies. They've come in on a drip feed basis for the better part of 2021. And that had the result of delaying the commencement of our of our vaccine program in South Africa. And when it did start, because we had scarce supplies, we had to ration. And that is the reason why South Africa started a vaccine program in age cohorts, which also explains why only in the last few weeks it has now started to vaccinate children. So we were a few months behind many of you in the global north in terms of the commencement of your vaccine program. And I, you know, many of us believe that the delay and the timing actually allowed an anti-vax movement to grow. It's a similar movement that we saw when we dealt with the HIV AIDS crisis, where people felt that ARVs uh, were, were, were not an appropriate way of managing the HIV AIDS crisis. You'll remember we had a president and a minister promoting garlic and olive oil as a solution instead of ARVs. So we do have the remnants of that particular anti-science movement. But given the changes in the vaccine selection, the vaccines that we were using, given the delays, the different age groups starting at different times, it also created a lot of hesitancy. Uh, and there are still people who would, you know, are still deciding whether they want to take the vaccine or not. We believe that in the last 72 hours with the president calling on people to also take the vaccine now, given this new variant, that this is likely to change. But in order to address this, we need a lot of support and a lot of resources to do community literacy and to actually take vaccines to where the people are. So as I understand it, the hesitancy can't be seen in isolation from the lumpy supply because the lumpy supply and the constant change of which vaccines were going to be used gave sort of fuel to the to the anti-vax movement and, and left a bit of a vacuum. I want to ask about the situation that, that South Africa currently finds itself in. Obviously, this Omicron variant, we're all talking in, in the UK, oh, what policy changes will be needed? Does this mean we're going to have to go back into, into a lockdown? And as I've described, we've got you know, almost 70% of, of the population double vaccinated in South Africa, more like 25%. In what state is South Africa to deal with this new variant, which is obviously, you know, already much more prevalent there than it is here? How do you assess how South Africa will deal with this? So what we've had is the president has actually addressed the nation uh, in the last 24 hours, and he's maintained a level one lockdown. For those of you who are unfamiliar with what a level one means, is that there's limited restrictions. I mean, it's not a it's not a lockdown with with severe restrictions. And one of the key things that government is doing to address the issue of the 35 to 42 percent vaccine rate in in adults, depending on how you define a fully vaccinated person, uh, is to consider whether South Africa should actually adopt vaccine mandates. And so I think it goes back to what we were discussing earlier about how do you address, you know, the influence and power of the anti-vax movement, as well as vaccine hesitancy, uh, amidst a backdrop of where decisions have changed quite often because we're dealing with a pandemic that, you know, nobody could plan, nobody knew about, and we've dealt with quite different uh, decision-making around vaccine selection. So what is on the cards is a possible vaccine mandate. Um, so that we can actually try and get more people vaccinated to to deal with the consequences of a variant, uh, which, by the way, 
the scientists and government scientists are also indicating that we still don't have enough information. So in the last 48 hours, our experts in South Africa have indicated that we don't have enough information to determine whether this variant is more transmissible than previous variants. So, you know, that is still something that is uncertain. I think we have quite advanced genomic surveillance systems. So government is basically relying on the expertise of our scientists to advise it on what other measures it could take, um, in addition to the normal sort of approach of sharing information with the rest of the world, including the WHO. What is not appropriate, and I think what is rather um, uh, alarming, was the knee-jerk reaction of many countries to just, you know, simply impose a travel ban. That's, that is not how you deal uh, with variants in a pandemic in an epidemiological or in a scientific way. That, that is certainly not going to basically get us out of this pandemic uh, because we we quite advanced in 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 this particular pandemic, right? So that you know that's a situation that we're dealing with. I wanted to ask about travel bans because I know there's been a lot of outrage in in South Africa that essentially South Africa is being punished for having excellent genomic sequencing capabilities and for having been very honest and open with with the world. It, you know, in a sense, South Africa has done us a favor by discovering this variant. Now we've said, oh, you know, we're you're a pariah and you can't go anywhere. I do understand that argument. On on the other side, I do feel like there is some justification to say if there's a new variant we don't know that much about. Let's try and stop it spreading as, as much as we possibly can. I, I think when we had the alpha variant, some some countries blocked off travel from, from the UK as well. Do you think it, it it's just completely out of order in all circumstances to implement a travel ban? Or do you think it could be justified if instead of the UK saying, oh, you know, this is your problem. We're implementing a travel ban. We will implement that ban, but we will compensate you with, you know, with a bunch of medical equipment and, and lots of solidarity, recognizing that you are in a difficult situation right now because you got hit by this variant first. And also to say thank you for, for discovering this and, and being so open. Do you think there could be more of a quid pro quo and then and then the ban would be more acceptable? I think the issue is that people are enraged in Southern Africa because several countries in Southern Africa were put on multiple travel ban lists uh, immediately, uh, even though the variant has been discovered in other places. And so one of the questions that, for example, Stephanie Nolan from the New York Times had asked was, if the CDC, if the US had discovered this variant with only 22 cases, would the immediate reaction be to place the the US on an on global travel ban list. So we do think that the reaction has been knee-jerk, that the WHO has also indicated that there wasn't sufficient information to immediately respond with the travel ban. So coming to your question of a quid pro quo, I think the and you know the reason why people are enraged is because it's an inconsistent application of the travel ban quite late in the pandemic. So you talked about the alpha variant. That was quite early on in the pandemic, and we're in a very different set of uh, uh, circumstances now in November 2021. And that is what the scientists and experts are saying, that travel bans may have had a role in a place at a certain point in this pandemic quite early on, but it certainly doesn't have a place now. And if you are going to impose a travel ban, then you basically have to impose a universal travel ban and basically stop all travel from all countries, from all places. But that is not what is happening. even now that we have multiple cases in other parts of the world. Mostly it's countries in Southern Africa that are subject to the travel ban. So that's when you have to ask, what is the science behind this? What is the real reason for why countries in Southern Africa are actually being placed on the travel ban? And is there a consideration 
for the impact that that has and the socioeconomic factors. Now, had there been more of a uh, offer of support, of cooperation, of global solidarity, which is what our genomic surveillance teams had actually suggested, then perhaps we'd be having a different conversation. But what we have is a travel ban without that recognition and without that offer of support. And I think that is the reason why people are just really frustrated, because this is not the first time there is a sense that throughout this pandemic, we've really been... Um, ignored and isolated and subject to, you know, a number of discriminatory approaches, including uh, in relation to vaccine access and the prioritization of vaccine supplies for Africa. So I think it's a combination of factors that are making people really impatient and really angry with the global north. That was Fatima Hassan, director of the Health Justice Initiative. Nadine Doris, the UK Culture Secretary, is no stranger to controversy. She's a social conservative and opposed to gay marriage. She campaigned to reduce term limits for abortions. She's also a bit of a Twitter troll, having called prominent liberal journalists fuckwits. But this weekend, she gave an interview to the Daily Mail, which was supposed to show her softer side. The headline for the piece was, The left loves to demonise Culture Secretary Nadine Doris, but this intimate interview reveals her very human side. This was, however, not to be an interview which would persuade any or many of Nadine Dorsey's critics. Asked about Caroline Noakes alleging she was groped by Boris Johnson's father, Nadine Doris said the following, I don't believe it happened. I have known Stanley for 15 years. He is a gentleman. It never happened to me. Maybe there is something wrong with me. Now, the context here, Stanley Johnson has been accused by two women of inappropriate touching. One was Caroline Noakes, she's a Conservative MP. The other was Alva Ray, who was a journalist at The New Statesman. According to Nadine Doris, though, because it never happened to her, it can't have happened to anyone else. Caroline Noakes wasn't impressed. She told the Press Association the following. I am very sorry the Secretary of State has used her considerable influence and power in the media to denounce me in this way. I very much hope her attitude does not deter other women from being brave enough to report their experiences of public sexual harassment. Ash, what did you make of that, seeing that, that quote from our Culture Secretary on the weekend? Nadine Dorries is the protagonist of reality. So if something hasn't happened to her personally... It hasn't happened to anybody. And, you know, that's why you do have to have an incredibly high threshold to accuse anybody of you know, any kind of sexual violence. They have to have done it to every woman on the planet for, for it to have happened at all. And, and I think that's a very sensible threshold to have for taking action on sexual harassment, sexual assault, or indeed rape. And I think it's a really um, workable policy to have. Unless you've done it to every woman, you've not done it at all. And she's not going to suffer any consequence for this, right? I mean, this is the, this is the kind of thing well, you're allowed to say on the front bench. I mean, especially when your boss is the son of the person who is, you know, the accused. Well, look, I think we've got two issues to separate out. One is the level of tolerance shown for Stanley Johnson's history of misogyny. Right? And he does have a history of misogyny. He's been accused by his ex-wife of breaking his nose. And that's Boris Johnson's, uh, sorry, breaking her nose. That's Boris Johnson's own mother. You have two women who've come forward with what I think of as fairly credible testimony about being groped. There's, you know, detail. There's, you know, level of consistency in what they're saying. Um, they're two women who also 
aren't necessarily friends or political allies. You know, they've got absolutely no reason to make any of this stuff up. Um, and yet there is a level of protection afforded to him for two reasons. One is that he is very well liked within conservative circles. He's very well established within conservative circles. And being the father of the prime minister gives you a certain amount of leeway, which isn't given to other men. He's somebody who makes regular appearances in the media solely because he's Boris Johnson's father. And there is something about that entire ghastly Johnson clan, including the sister Rachel Johnson, the way they pop up and broadcast like a rash, crowing about their access to the prime minister's mind in a way that shouldn't happen in any modern democracy. Um, so I think that's why there's a certain level of tolerance for Stanley Johnson and why even though you've got you know two women an MP and a journalist at the New Statesman which should be kind of career ending for anybody to be accused of of you know groping uh you know two two women with that level of status and power in society that's why I, I don't think that this is going to trouble him very much of course Boris Johnson himself was accused of groping a journalist Charlotte Edwards uh, she wrote an article about it that he reached under the table during a working lunch and groped her thigh and another woman's thigh. Um, nothing happened. Nothing happened. It, it was memory hold. So I think that there is actually a, a high level of tolerance for sexual violence, for misogyny, for sexual harassment, when it's politically inconvenient to actually hold the perpetrator accountable. And then the second thing is about Nadine Dorries in particular. So if what Boris Johnson wanted was somebody who wouldn't say things which are completely dunderheaded, someone who could be relied upon to have, you know, a pretty solid grip of the culture brief, know who funds Channel 4, for instance, and, you know, its structure of governance, somebody who understands the BBC and the pressures it's under and wants to see it uh, succeed as an institution, then he wouldn't have appointed Nadine Dorries to the culture brief. She's somebody who has distinguished herself, I think, with a level of viciousness and stupidity which puts her head and shoulders above many others within the Conservative Party. So that really is some achievement. She's somebody who has uh, mixed me up with uh, another South Asian woman who I look nothing like. It's a grave insult to Pfizer Shaheen to suggest that we look the same, quite frankly. Um, and then when pulled up on it, she said that uh, the reason why she thought that we were the same was because of our accent. Do you think that's plausible at all? Um, she's somebody who has, you know, retweeted horrific, you know, racism and, you know, had to then unretweet it. She's somebody who has threatened journalists for asking questions about her daughter being paid with taxpayer money, saying that what she nailed their bollocks to something or something like really. That one passed me by. Wow. I think it's a journalist from the mirror. Um, so she's someone who throughout her political career has been characterized by shocking levels of ignorance and also, I think, really quite alarming levels of vitriol. So, no, there's not going to be any kind of consequence for her because this is why she's been appointed to the role. She's a nasty piece of work, and that's why she got the promotion. I mean, I think that's an incredibly persuasive argument and a very good summary. She's a nasty piece of work and that's why she got the promotion. So, of course, she is not going to suffer professional consequences for saying, oh, no, I don't believe these women got groped by this person because I've never been groped by this person. It's not the kind of thing you should be saying if you're in 
the cabinet. I mean, it's not the kind of thing you should be saying whatever your job is, but especially not if you're one of the most powerful people in the country. Let's go to our next story, which is about the reshuffle. Keir Starmer started a reshuffle this morning. It seemed a little bit botched at the beginning because he announced it in the middle of an Angela Rayner speech, and then it took ages for any news to emerge. But we do now have quite a lot of updates. There are quite a lot of positions we now know. The big moves are Yvette Cooper has gone to become Shadow Home Secretary. David Lammy has gone to become Shadow Foreign Secretary. Lisa Nandy has gone to the Department for Leveling Up. Wes Streeting to Shadow Health and Jonathan Ashworth to Shadow DWP. And we should probably mention who they've replaced. So Yvette Cooper has replaced Nick Thomas-Simons. He's gone to be the Trade Secretary. David Lammy has replaced Lisa Nandy, oh, who's gone to the Department for Leveling Up. Wes Streeting has replaced Jonathan Ashworth, who's gone to the Department for the Department for Work and Pensions. Um, we can go to the next round, the next bunch. We also have Bridget Phillipson, who's gone to Shadow Education. Jonathan Reddles, who's gone to Shadow Business. And he there, this is quite a big one, has pushed Ed Miliband out of the business brief. Ed Miliband is keeping the climate and energy brief, which was part of base. It was part of the business department. So this is a bit of a demotion for him. Nick Thomas-Simons, as I say, he's been demoted from Shadow Home Secretary to Shadow Trade. And Emily Formbury has been demoted from um, Shadow Trade to Shadow Attorney General. I say demoted. Some people might consider those to be on the same level. Looks like a demotion to me. Um, we've also got Lou Haig has gone to transport. Um, Ash, we're going to talk about some of the, you know, the circumstances of this reshuffle today. Any of those moves, do they, do they stand out for you particularly? So I think that there's a lot in here that's really interesting because you did have, I think, a lot of people occupying this front bench positions who didn't make much of an impact either politically or in the media. So, you know, Nick Thomas Simmons, I can't really think of something he came out with that really cut through. Uh, Lisa Nandy, in terms of the uh, foreign secretary brief, I don't think she did an awful lot with that either. There weren't a whole load of punches being landed on Dominic Raab, for instance, over the handling of the Afghanistan withdrawal. It seems that her main role when it came to being foreign secretary was kind of um, setting the boundaries of respectable opinion when talking about Israel and Palestine. And what that meant was shifting things away from a recognition of Palestinian self-determination or indeed a right to self-defense or indeed uh, a reaction a realistic view of what's going on, which is a de facto one-state arrangement, and more assertively shifting the Labour Overton window to you know what you might describe as liberal Zionism. That's kind of the most distinguished and characteristic thing that she did with the role. So particularly with Yvette Cooper and David Lammy, it's that their politics are not my politics, but they are people with a lot more media cut through than those that they've replaced. Yvette Cooper is, of course, quite interesting in terms of her role during the Windrush scandal. She's credited with asking the sticky questions which, which brought down Amber Rudd. It's something which I think really uh, helped repair her reputation and, and advance it. I would be wary, I think, of buying in a little bit too much into the hagiography of St. Yvette Cooper. She wasn't one of the people who rebelled on the immigration bill, unlike Jeremy Corbyn, John McDonald, Diane Abbott, uh, who, who voted against the Conservative bill, which introduced the hostile environment. Um, she's also somebody who offered a bit of advice to Amber Rudd on how to weather the Windrush scandal, which I think is something which is completely at odds with the spirit of accountability, considering that what Amber Rudd did 
as Home Secretaries deport Black British citizens, essentially on the basis of their race. Um, David Lammy is somebody who I think has carved out something of a, a media persona for himself as, as a bit of a liberal hero. Um, I wonder what that's going to do for Labour in terms of its pitch to, you know, the Brexit voting seats it lost in the Midlands and the North. But it's undeniable that he's got media presence, um, I think maybe even a bit more than Lisa Nandy had. And as for Emily Thornbury, this is sort of emblematic of the muddled up thinking of Keir Starmer. No one can really decide whether Emily Thornbury, and I think this is something which Stephen Bush tweeted, is a liability who needs to be consigned to the backbenches because, you know, she's a kryptonite to Brexiters uh, who deserted Labour in 2019, or whether she's a big hitter, somebody who is combative, intelligent, charismatic, and, you know, can do some real damage to the Conservatives. Keir Starmer can't quite decide. So he's sort of putting her in these marginal roles where she's neither one thing or the other. Personally, I think that Emily Thornbury gets an unfair stick. So there was a Labour source briefing today, you know, that she's a London lawyer, Islington, Remainer, in very derisive terms. Now, of course, all of those epithets also apply to Keir Starmer. It's just that Emily Thornbury, I think, on account of being a woman was unfairly dismissed from, you know, being a leadership contender. It went to Keir Starmer, who I think has all of Emily Thornbury's supposed weaknesses and none of her strengths. From Keir Starmer's perspective, he has replaced some weak media performers with some better media performers. So he can say, you know, this was just a, this was a, you know, a professional decision as opposed to a political one. At the same time, I think on the whole, this probably is a shift to the right. David Lammy, Shadow Foreign Secretary, he's someone who voted for the Iraq War. Yvette Cooper, Shadow Home Secretary, she was someone when she she had that role under Ed Miliband, who was known to be arguing for for tougher lines on migration. Wes Streeting, massive Blairite in at Shadow Health. He's clearly to the right of Jonathan Ashworth um, and Bridget Phillipson to, to Shadow Education. Again, she's also sort of like a progress type. It's interesting there that Wes Streeting and, and Bridget Phillipson have both been given those promotions. They're two of the people most commonly touted as potential successors to Keir Starmer. So clearly um, some people around Keir are, are perfectly happy for them to get their time in the limelight. If you're a Labour politician being in the education or the health brief, quite good for your career because Labour members tend to like people who talk about education and talk about health because they're, you know, they're classic labor issues. The Ed Miliband demotion, I do think is pretty significant. Clearly, Keir Starmer didn't think he was pro-business enough. So he, he's taken the, the business part out of his title. I'm not entirely sure if he's still going to be in the shadow cabinet. That's going to be fairly significant. I assume he will be because it would be seen as too confrontational to tell him to lead on, on climate change and energy, but just completely hoof him out. So I imagine this was sort of the compromise um, position. Nick Thomas, I'm Mr. Shadow Trade. No one's going to notice. Frankly, he was home. He was shadow home secretary. No one noticed. No one's going to notice him in, in this new role. Um, let's talk a little bit about one other person who resigned. Um, so apparently she was also demoted from the shadow cabinet, but she was allowed to keep her brief until she resigned. It is Cat Smith. Um, so she was the first person um, to announce she was standing down this morning. She was the only person um, we knew who was moving. She tweeted, it's been an honour to serve on the Labour front bench since 2015, but I'm looking forward to spending even more time at home here in Lancashire and standing up for my constituents. 
Then in the letter, she said, although I am grateful for your offer to remain in my current brief, I have only been on the backbenches for four months in my six and a half years as an MP, and I will instead be returning to the backbenches so that my current brief there has has been analysed by many people as suggesting she was told she could still work on youth engagement and voter registration, but she'd no longer be in the shadow cabinet. So she decided instead to, to instead of taking that demotion, to resign. Um, and she also said, this is the interesting part, you will be aware that we had a meeting scheduled for later this week during which I wanted to raise the issue of and my concerns about Jeremy not being readmitted to the Parliamentary Labour Party after he was readmitted into our party membership following due process. This position is utterly unsustainable and it is important that you truly understand how much damage this is causing in constituency Labour parties and amongst ordinary members, a number of whom are no longer campaigning. You will also be aware that I am a long-standing advocate for proportional representation and I am disappointed that we, as a party, have not adopted a position which I believe to be fundamentally fairer and very much in keeping with the views of my constituents. Ash, I'm guessing that Cat Smith was probably the last person in the shadow cabinet who had a strong opinion that, that, that Jeremy Corbyn should be let back into the PLP. Is it significant that she's now gone? I think so. I think maybe what this shows is that there's a significant flaw in the stay and fight uh, argument, which is while that might work at a CLP level and why that might be useful in terms of uh, helping people who are on the left get through candidate selections, you don't have adequate representation within the shadow cabinet to stop Keir Starmer drifting to the right in terms of how he wants to fill shadow cabinet roles, breaking the promises that he got elected on, or even just offering basic due process uh, and fairness to somebody like Jeremy Corbyn, his predecessor in the role, uh, the man who was Labour leader when Keir Starmer was quite happy to be a member of his shadow cabinet, not once, but twice, uh, you know, who was uh, responsible for the manifesto that Keir Starmer was happy to stand on in both 2017 and 2019. So I think that in terms of the stay and fight strategy, that is a weakness. There is a lack of leverage within the shadow cabinet and a lack of representation of left-wing views in earshot of Keir Starmer. In fact, he's surrounded by people who tell him that he's doing great only if he's seen to be bashing the left enough. So I don't think that Keir Starmer is going to take Cat Smith's resignation uh, as any particular blow to his authority because he's going to have people who are, you know, part of that Blairite faction whispering in his ear saying the fact she's gone is great for you. She's no loss. No doubt. I have no doubt about that whatsoever. Let's talk briefly because this is genuinely, I think, a bit of a Westminster story. No one really you know, the public don't care about this, but it can be interesting if you're interested in, you know, what happens at the top of Labour politics. And that's because the manner of the reshuffle caused some consternation as it was launched in the middle of a speech by Angela Rayner on Tory corruption. Um, so lobby journalists pointed this out. They weren't impressed. Normally they quite like Keir Starmer. Sebastian Payne at the FT tweeted, decided Deciding to reshuffle the shadow cabinet while your deputy leader is giving a keynote speech on taking on the Tories is proper galaxy brain stuff from Labour. After this announcement happened while she was giving a speech, there was also lots of speculation about whether or not Raina knew she was about to be upstaged or had she been taken by surprise. Well, she didn't seem to know during her broadcast round this morning. Here she is on Times Radio. You famously weren't much consulted the last time you had a go at that. Uh, have you been consulted on plans for a reshuffle? 
No, I'm not aware of any plans for a reshuffle. I haven't been consulted, so I don't think there's any, you know, focus on that at the moment. You know, everyone's been focused on holding the government to account and, you know, trying to get to the point where, you know, government ministers and the prime minister do the right thing by the country rather than, you know, setting us up to, to fail. You know, Rachel Reeves, our shadow chancellor, has done an amazing job setting out why the Labour Party is the party of business and the party of, our eco- of the UK economy. And we've seen the government really take the off the ball they've you know let down the north they've broken promises on rail and you know we've been holding the government to account and that's what we're focusing on at the moment not internal whether what job you've got yeah you'd expect to hear you'd hear about it first wouldn't you as well if there was going to be one i reckon that kira would tell me first yeah yeah so apparently he did tell her first but without much notice and without any consultation. So um, I actually think it was af- I think it was after her broadcast round and before her speech is I think what people settled on later on. The word "told" there being quite significant, she potentially wasn't very happy. He was about to upstage her, but she had been informed, so it wasn't a complete surprise. People in her team do seem quite pissed off, though. Um, Jack McKenna is her head of comms. He tweeted. Today's speech is the culmination of many, many weeks of work from a small, talented and dedicated team. I'm very proud of the work we've done to hold the Tories to account for being corrupt and our plan to overhaul the broken system that we have today. So the timing of that tweet suggesting that Angela Rayner's team were kind of annoyed um, that they were upstaged by this. Um, Ash, I sort of introduced this by saying all of the lobby journalists were going wild this morning. So like, oh, the timing of the reshuffle is this. I feel like this is something that's going to be forgotten within about six hours. Is the beef between Keir Starmer and Angela Rayner in any way significant here? It's going to be forgotten by a journalist within six hours, but I don't think it's going to be forgotten either by Keir Starmer's team or Angela Rayner's team. Labour leaders tend not to do so well when the leader and the deputy leader are at odds with each other. I think regardless of when Angela Rayner was informed of the reshuffle, the fact that she didn't know before her morning media round and the fact that it was timed uh, at the same time as, you know, what was supposed to be a big set piece prominent speech shows that Keir Starmer is more than willing to undermine her. That doesn't, I think, give any comfort to either members or would-be voters who want just to see a bit of unity, to see the party leadership acting in concert with one another. And I think that even if this particular episode is forgotten, it might be a recurring storyline through the months to come. Another thing to bear in mind is that Kiyosama did reshuffle his cabinet only back in May. And since then, I think, I don't know, we might have had something like 18 or 19 relaunches of, you know, Keir Starmer and the Labour Party. And when that reshuffle went ahead in May, one of the things that was being briefed is that this was supposed to be an election fighting and allegedly election winning shadow cabinet. So the fact that it has gone out the window so quickly, the fact that it was timed in such a way as to undermine uh, Angela Rayner, I think tells you a little bit about either the level of honesty uh, coming from Keir Starmer, or perhaps he's just not that convinced by his own political strategy. That's why he's so vulnerable to being shunted further and further along to the right. Now, I think when it comes to how much this is going to matter, you're right, this doesn't have cut through. But what it does do, I think, is is hamstring Keir Starmer's ability to land a proper blow on the Conservatives, particularly on something like corruption and sleaze, where 
we know that they've had like a little bit of a dip in the polls. That would be something which would make common sense uh, to keep hammering them on. But instead, uh, you know, he's plucked defeat out of the jaws of victory and handed the press another Labour infighting story. Thank you for joining us this evening. Thank you for your super chats and your tweets. We'll be back on Wednesday um, at 7pm. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.